Welcome back to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation at the intersection of remembering, belonging, and place. I'm Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and I'm your host for season three. For this season, we're using the relationship between Walter Brueggemann, Peter Block, and John McKnight as a model for how the common good shows up in local, tangible, relational ways. This episode will pick up from last week as it continues to circle around and deepen the conversation about land and story. But it begins with John's thoughts on time. You know, if you get out of the kingdom, what is time? Yeah. Two thoughts about that. Irish writer, poet, Singh, S-Y-N-G-E. And he went out to live on the Isle of Arran, where still the old Celtic culture was really alive. It was in about 1890. And he lived in the house with a couple of peasants on this rocky island. He was paying for the place and, and his meals. But when he noticed that he never got his lunch at the same time, it seemed to vary. So he began to wonder, why does it vary? And he watched and talked to the housewife. And she had her front door open in this one room, and the sun would come through. So she cooked by the sun. And as the sun would change, right, (laughs) she changed. She followed the sun. So that if the sun were in the middle of the stove, she would start then, right? But the next day it would be on the first burner, and then she would start then. But there were cloudy days, as there always are in Ireland. And how did she know about lunch? She said, then I depend on the bells. (laughs) <laughs> the church with the yeah. six times a day yeah. uh, marking off yeah. the space and time. Yeah. And there's something lovely about this. That's right. That in the place where, of satisfaction, how we know time That's is right. the bells That's right. tell us. They don't hurry us. They sing to us. Yeah. That's time. A lot of high-tech companies, they say, look, we have no policy with respect to how much vacation time you take or how many days off time you take. Mm -hmm. We know that you can work at home, you can work. You know why they do that? With that policy, people work more days (laughs) than if they had a limit on the number of days you can take. Mm -hmm. Nothing that we imagine can happen quickly. So I just think speed is the number one feature of an empire, and it's always used as a rationalization to end democracy. You know, Oscar Wilde said the problem with socialism is too many meetings. (laughs) In other words, it takes too much time. Too many evening meetings. Evening meetings are more (laughs) That's that's worse than meetings. Meetings. Yeah. (laughs) So it's it's just central. Is there time, time on my hands? Do I have time? Am I running out of time? Am I in a hurry, hurry to do what? Go home and watch television? I don't think you can really produce a future, which is what freedom means to me and feel you have to do it by a certain date. It's not an argument for moving slowly. Some people are going to walk faster than I do. But the idea that if we can't do it by this date, that's the mindset. That's pure scarcity. And why would you ever write a book if you were in a hurry? For me, writing a book, people say, what are you doing? I say, I'm busy not writing the book. (laughs) (laughs) Cleaning the closet. Everybody knows that the only reason you clean out a closet is because something else you don't want to do. Speed is a real agency of senselessness. Over and over again, I can see that there's something about it that says where I am is where I am not. That I am always in motion. In motion, always going someplace. Yep. 
Walkability is a decision about time that opens up sensibleness rather than nonsense. It's so clear to me that everything fast diminishes your senses and makes you, I think, ever more dependent. Something is is moving you, right? Art Lyons, one of my best friends, lives in Chicago, has worked there all his life, and he's walked every place he's ever gone. And Art knows about Chicago in a way I don't know anybody who knows Chicago. Yeah. Some people have said the bicycle is the fastest you can go and see something along the way. And also, speed is an escape from depth. I thought you said death. Yeah, that too. Power is an escape from death. Yeah, I know. It's a fear of death, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, when we get afraid, we have curfews. You stay in your house after 10 o'clock or you get arrested. Time is used so many different ways. Spending time means going to jail. I've done my time. Have you done time? And so we punish people by giving them lots of time with nothing to do. Yeah. That's our idea of incarceration. Yeah, right, doing time. I know, we should punish them by making them be middle managers in large corporations. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sabbath is, in the wilderness narrative of the Hebrew Bible, Sabbath is the reference point. Everything is organized around Sabbath. And it's a protest against restless productivity. productivity yeah. Yeah. I think in uh, in Pharaoh's Egypt, nobody had a Sabbath. The slaves didn't have a Sabbath. And I imagine that, that Pharaoh was looking at his monitor <laughs> four times a day to see how many bricks had been done that day. Yeah. Pharaoh couldn't take a Sabbath. Because uh, if he took a Sabbath, yeah. someone would slip out from under his control. You know, you know the early industrialization was began with a time and motion study. And so they actually watched Big John do something, make something machinist or something, and measured every small increment of time, and then suggested to him he was engaged in useless steps. And the whole quality improvement movement through the 1900s was all about reducing inefficiency. And so those are all qualities of empire. The uh, GPS God. is a tool of empire. The <laughs> GPS cause it means I'll never be lost. I love that about it. I get yeah. lost all the time. <laughs> I used to. I lived in a development. The 60s, that the houses look so much alike. Every third time, I pull in the wrong driveway, <laughs> <laughs> and I was happy to be commodified because right. I had a front-to-back split ranch. I finally painted the curb because I was embarrassed. <laughs> so I would get out of my car, walk up, and say, "Wait, I don't have a red door. I want the wrong house." In Wisconsin, in a small industrial town, it was a neighborhood where they they go into every household nest each person in the household, what do you know well enough that you could uh, teach it to somebody else? So every person will tell you three or four things. And then they say, would you be willing to teach this to kids who live in the neighborhood? Well, it drops by half because the answer is, I'd love to, but I don't have time. And if you're getting prepared, the, I think the preparation is to say, I am now going to have time to do the things that lead to my well-being. And that's leaving the consumer culture. Thinking about it in advance is a very important thing because you're linking their own idea about what brings well-being to the fact that if they're the producer and they say time won't allow me, that then you're going to have to step out of time as you know it. Will you do that? I think that what you just said, as you know it, so time is a construct. Yes. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, it took us forever to agree how long a minute was, you know, 1400s, I think. But I think it is a construct. The act of imagination is to realize there is enough time. And right. whatever story I have about I don't have enough time is ridiculous. You have time for everything that matters. Yeah. Everything that matters. Right. Yes. And a lot of people, I think the entertainment industry mm. is designed to fill up time. Yeah, just saying those words actually just helps me breathe. I mean, it's so simple and yet so difficult. And just hearing those words is so helpful. Exactly. It allows you to exhale. Yeah. Every time you exhale, uh, you allow toxins to leave your body. Every time you inhale, you bring in healing. That's why yoga is only about breathing. <laughs> Everything else is to get you to come back. Before the conversation shifts the role of institutions, let's honor the value of breath and pause. Take a deep breath in, deep breath out. As you listen to these words from Naomi Shihab Nye, stay connected with your breath. This is called shoulders. A man crosses the street in rain, stepping gently, looking two times north and south because his son is asleep on his shoulder. No car must splash him, no car drive too near to his shadow. This man carries the world's most sensitive cargo, but he's not marked. Nowhere does his jacket say fragile, handle with care. His ear fills up with breathing. He hears the hum of a boy's dream deep inside him. We're not going to be able to live in this world if we're not willing to do what he's doing with one another. The road will only be wide. The rain will never stop falling. Now let's jump back in as the conversation turns to the role of institutions. Here's John. Let me ask you the, the practical question. If we think about the institutional professional world, and we're talking to people who live in that world, a lot of them, right. and we say to them, how can you act in ways that will result in the people on this block who have what children need to know for future life, what can you do that would support that? In other words, supposing I went to this small city and I took all of the authorities and said to them, what can you do because half these people that could be teaching kids all kinds of things that aren't in the school that they need to know will do it, will have the time to do it. Yep. In other words, do institutions have a role in the whole question of enabling the non-empire even though they are the empire? Well, I think, I think so. I mean, people who would say, yes, I could teach that, they still have to have a place yeah. and, and a, an appointed time of meeting. Mm -hmm. I mean, you need that modicum of management or it won't happen. In fact, where they put people together is at the library. Yeah, the library is the, the best non-empire. <laughs> yeah, right. Did you see the Cincinnati Library? No. Called Public? It's about the decision of the librarian to let homeless people stay there That's, all night. It is the most <laughs> class-free building in town. In the film, all the politicians and all the media people assaulted that decision. <laughs> the film ends because they're all breaking the law. The film ends with the arrival of the police bus to take all these people away, right. and they all come out of the library to the bus with, with their, their hands, hands up, up naked, oh, including crazy. the librarian. <laughs> <laughs>
You know, I, I think, though, the library, with your question, what are institutions good for? One is just their convening capacity. Mm, that's right. Yes. That's right. They have the capacity to convene yep. around a purpose. Yep. I, we need that. I need a place to go. I have a key to a Methodist church in my neighborhood because I need a place to meet, and I'm not willing to get in my car. David Meredith, the pastor, says, here, take the damn key. Yeah. I, I just have to call Ellen and let her know what I'm going to be. That's, right. that's, right. <laughs> that's a useful institution. It right. goes deeper than that with his institution. So there are yeah. all these places yeah. that have the possibility. And I think for what our audience is, for who we're talking to, are people that have institution affiliation. We all live in the empire. Mm -hmm. You say, how do we create projects of imagination? Put a little block or take a little block out of the wall of the empire. Mm -hmm. All of us can take one little block <laughs> out of the wall of the empire and use it like cobblestone streets, you know, that, that was ballast for empty ships. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so let's take them out and build the street yeah. with them, like yep. we did with bricks. The conventional thinking is for, for this to happen, for me to claim my agency and use that language, something else has to happen. Top management, the mayor, the, you know, the citizen, yep. the safety, the education level, the power. No. The, the, the real freedom is to realize there's nothing to wait for. Now, I may not want to do it, but mm. that's fair. Yep. If you can't say no, then the yes means nothing. Mm. But if you say no, I don't want my freedom, I want my safety, yeah. I want a boss and a boss's boss, yep. God bless you, at least you have a choice. I think when we think about do institutions have a role, when, when I was a neighborhood organizer, what I was actually doing was precipitating collectivity among the local people for purpose of growing agency, period. Yep. It's yep. all about. I do know that it is very unlikely that what happened as a result of my being there as a precipitator would have happened if I wasn't there. Can we say to professionals and institutional people, can you be a precipitator? I recently wrote a paper in which I described five officials and authorities that I thought were precipitators. And by that I mean you get people to act together but have no influence in what it is they act together about. So I think there is a lot of activity, and you can call it convening one way it goes. Yeah. But some of the most effective community building activities I know are from precipitating people with some authority or external role. Right. right. So I, I think we want to put this in our true. litany yep. as being really true. Yep. Well, what's leadership? Leadership, yeah. It's an some idea. people call it hosting. <laughs> hosting, not yeah. leading. The idea of a role model, give me a break. Let's walk. Why don't you walk your talk? Give me a I don't that's not leadership, that's control. And most institutions are just funny about that. The best descriptions of leadership are human beings with great integrity. I just saw Bob Woodward give a talk from the Washington Post, and he said his publisher was a great leader and had nothing to do with the management ability. It's just when it came time to hold on to the Watergate story when the whole world was denying it and Nixon had just won a landslide election in the face of it. She said, we're going to stay with it. No, yep. He said that was leadership. So I think yep. it's something to do with integrity. And I don't have to look for that in you or anybody else. You know. In my field of organizational, whatever it used to be, 
leadership is the one thing everybody still cares about, which means if you're still looking for something and can't find it, you got it framed wrong. It's not that you didn't invest enough money or do enough research. I, I think in the biblical narrative, the, the primary function of leadership is to help the community keep its story straight because there are huge uh, pressures to distort the story. Who, who biblically was a leader? Well, Jesus, Jesus, his name won. Okay. He wasn't departing Judaism. Yeah. He was retelling Judaism to get the story of uh. the Jews straight. And the people who had invested in distorted versions of the story had to oppose him. Yeah. I, I think that's what the prophets do. They keep reminding you. Know, one of the uh, initiatives of the East German Protestant Church was to insist that Marxists be good Marxists <laughs> because they had dis distorted the story of Karl Marx. Uh -huh. uh, getting the story straight uh, is, is really urgent and, uh, and difficult. When I was organizing, a guy named Van Hoffman who became sort of famous, he was a major columnist in the Washington Post and then became a writer. He was my uh, lead organizer. And we went to one neighborhood organization, another organizer put together at the annual meeting. And uh, the organizer was up at the front of the room with a couple of officers. And Nick said to me, I'm firing that son of a bitch. He said, no organizer is ever in the front of a room. An organizer who is developing is in the middle of the room. A great organizer is not in the room. And the reason is, what your job is, is to act in ways that your knowledge and skill is a power that you're giving away. And the proof of your success is you end up having none. And it is embedded now. Mm -hmm. In, in the others. And, and Alinsky said, tried at the beginning, didn't work, that three years and out. In other words, you had to leave after three years. And, and he said, and if it falls apart, it's because you're a poor organizer. You will never send you another place. Wow. So you're building a community of continuity and power, and you're denuding yourself constantly. Yep. What is the bond in our time that will hold people together in a community of mutuality? What, what is it that we would say, well, they can bond, they will see that it is important for them to act together because what? I would say they don't need a reason. They need an experience. And every time we bring people in the room, and if we do it smartly, break them into small groups, just as a placeholder, and they fall in love with each other, they're gonna leave wanting to come back. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, give them something to do. Now, whoever is the convener, is it the church the convener, is it the mm -hmm. school that's convener, is it the library, it has all kinds of ways. The problem now is the library convenes, and I go and, and listen to Bob Woodward, but they never force me to meet anybody else in the room. And so like-mindedness is, you gotta overcome that. But I've had people come to a two-hour session and get connected to four other people. And at the end, they say, you know, I was thinking of leaving Cincinnati because mm. I've been so lonely here. And after these two hours, I'm no longer alone. Wow. I'm going to stay. Yeah. Rex. 
provide an opportunity for people whose great anxiety is loneliness. Which is all of us. Oh, mm. boy. Yeah. And I just think that's what the common good is about. The land, the place, the underneath it all, is, it's, the empire is just so deeply isolated. And it starts with the people forgetting the story, corrupting the story. But people get connected, and, and it doesn't take long. I think that longing is so deep. That's why you own a dog, so you can meet your neighbors. An organizer in Sweden who was in uh, housing development, he felt so many people there who were just really lonely. Yeah. He, he put a sign all on the bullet boards all through the development said, Are you lonely? If so, we're having a lunch on Tuesday in the main dining room. <laughs> And you're welcome to come. And he said, 83 people showed up the first lunch. <laughs> wow. And everything grow, grew from that. And he said, it was such a flyer to think that people would respond yeah. to a call to not be lonely. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm, always, and yeah. I'm thinking more and more that that getting real about that yeah. and seeing that as a bonding force is an important thing. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I haven't thought this through at all, but the, that the irreducible commonality is pain. Mm. And I think for how busy people are and how fast people live and so on, there is an elemental capacity for empathy to somebody else's pain. Mm. And when that thought occurred to me, I was thinking of the old hymn, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds Our Hearts in Christian Love. And then it talks about we share each other's woes we share. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. I don't remember the words exactly. That was a song about how we're not bonded by faith. We are bonded by the human experience that is so common to all of us. Unless the empire has so numbed us <laughs> yeah. that we think pain is simply uh, the price you pay to win. At the end of life, the retirement villages and stuff. And so we've kind of institutionalized those final years. And if you go to them, there's no more collection of lonely people than people waiting to die. How about you all? Are you lonely? I am. Yeah. It's always an issue for me. Oh. Abraham said when somebody came across the desert <laughs> into their camp, they didn't know who this was. He stood at the entrance to his tent and, and he said, come on in, stranger. We're strangers here too. And it's that invitation that seems to me to say, I, I am like you. Come on for that reason. I am lonely. Come. That's a, just a wonderful, optimistic thing in my mind. I suffered. Come suffer with me. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the work of Walter, Peter, and John, as well as the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor, with music from Jeff Gorman. Season four is already in the works, so stay subscribed, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>